This is the Blind Entrepreneur Podcast, helping millennials execute their vision. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Blind Entrepreneur. Today, I'm with Bob Moore. He's 32 years of age. He's the CEO and co-founder of RJ Metrics, which is a company that inspires and empowers data-driven people. RJ Metrics does this by building software that helps online businesses make smarter decisions. Bob, thank you so much for, for being on The Blind Entrepreneur, and I'm so excited to interview you. The first question is very simple. Tell All us right, about I'm yourself. Ready. Who are you, and what is your story? Yeah, uh, so hello, I'm Bob Moore. I'm the CEO and co-founder of RJ Metrics. Uh, I am a Philadelphia resident uh, and a proud South Jersey native originally. Um, I started the company about with my co-founder, Jake Stein, um, really based on our experiences working together at a venture capital firm called Insight Venture Partners where we were in this very fortunate position of being able to meet a very high number of entrepreneurs in a very small amount of time. A big part of our job was evaluating investment decisions and getting involved in analyzing companies when the firm was thinking about making an investment. Um, and as a result of our time spent there, we got to see the enormous opportunities that existed in allowing companies to use data that they already had to make smarter decisions and understand their customers better. Uh, and that was the, the origin of the idea for RJ Metrics, which was productizing a lot of the process that venture firms and other consultants would normally do manually in order to better understand a business. Um, so we set out to do that uh, back in 2008 and spent several years uh, in my attic and in a small office in Camden, New Jersey, nice. figuring out product market fit and getting the, the business off the ground. And you know, since then, we've been fortunate to uh, raise a good deal of, of venture capital money and, and grow the business to, uh, it's now at about 85 people, um, and super excited about the, the future and the continued growth. Wow. Well, congratulations thus far, and uh, obviously continued success. Now, with that being said, Thank you. Um, you mentioned that you worked for a VC firm. How did you even yeah. get started with uh, that, and, and why did you even want to get involved in that that aspect of business? Yeah, so it, the story really, that VC firm job was my first job out of college, and normally it's extremely difficult to get a job at a venture firm immediately out of college. It's, it's kind of atypical, and the only reason that I was able to get that job was because it was actually not a traditional VC job. It, I was not a partner at the firm. I was not a VP at the firm. I was my title there was analyst, which is basically the lowest possible title on the investment janitor. team. Uh, yeah, I was. I was, uh, I was about at a peer with with the janitor, uh, and a lot of that work is in a lot of ways it's a sales job because what you're doing is you are proactively reaching out to the ecosystem of uh, entrepreneurs and uh, technology business operators and trying to identify companies that fit the investment profile of the business. So it's kind of a weird uh, idea to a lot of people because a lot of people think about venture capital and they think, well, the, the companies come to you uh, and they are constantly knocking on your door trying to get your money. But with a firm like Insight that writes really big companies, it's actually the opposite. These companies are so attractive and growing so quickly that the money comes to them. And it's actually a very competitive process for the investors to attract the companies to accept their money. So I had a really weird sales job, which was selling money. And a big part of Insight's strategy for finding new investments was to you know, hire young, bright-eyed, and bushy-tailed uh, technology nerds and put them on the phone and have them uh, you know, blanket uh, the, the globe with coverage and conversations and try to find good deals. Um, and it's a great, great job for somebody 
who is interested in entrepreneurship long term um, because which is which is the reason why I took the job in the first place and I uh, made it clear to the team there when I joined that my long term aspirations were around starting a business and that uh, you know I was really working there to get exposure to great entrepreneurs and great stories and better appreciate what it meant to make the sacrifices of starting a company. Um, and that's that's precisely how it played out. Interesting. So you went there knowing that you would one day start a business. Yeah. I had in college, I had started a couple of companies, none of which got bigger than one employee, which was me. But <laughs> I had just enough to have a taste of entrepreneurship. Uh, and that that gave me all that I needed to understand that as early on as I could in my career, once I felt like I had a really strong idea, I was I was going to go in pursuit of that. So I, I was very upfront about that. So all, let's all let's hear way. some of the stories. Uh, what were some of the businesses that you had early on? Yeah. Uh, so probably the the one that is most interesting is in college. I so I uh, went to Princeton from 2002 to 2006. That was when I was there, and right smack in the middle in 2004, there was this interesting thing going on with online poker. Um, a, a confluence of factors were all happening all at once. Number one, uh, online casinos had become very popular, and they uh, enough information gets exchanged in a real time playing environment that you kind of need to be on a high bandwidth connection in order for it to work. At this point the world had shifted its way off of dial-up and onto broadband in a big enough way that you could actually technologically sustain a universe of real-time poker playing online. The FTC had not yet cracked down on online poker playing, so you could get real money on and off of those casinos pretty easily. Because there was that much real money floating around, these big online casinos had a lot of advertising budget, and they started advertising on late-night poker games in the World Series of Poker on ESPN 2 and 3, so much so that those late-night poker games started drifting their way into prime time because there were so many advertising dollars. And the World Series of Poker became this phenomenon that everybody in the world was watching all of a sudden. And in 04, this guy named Chris Moneymaker walked in off the street and won the entire thing. And it was kind of a great everyman story that made everybody in the world believe that they could win the World Series of Poker. Uh, so they all went online and started, started gambling online. Um, and uh, all of these, and that movie Rounders came out, uh, which is a great movie if you haven't seen it. It makes you want to play poker all the time. Uh, so you add all those things up, and if you walked into the back of a classroom at Princeton in the engineering department in any one of those years, and you just looked at all the laptops that were open during class, every single one of them would have five or six poker rooms open simultaneously. <laughs> so uh, you know, I always loved playing poker, but at the time I was in courses for computer science and uh, a lot of probability and statistics, and over the summer between my sophomore and junior year, I wanted to build an entire software program and I set out to basically build this thing called the Moraculator, which was a calculator uh, that would tell you at any given point during your poker hand uh, how you were doing, what your probability of winning was uh, based on the knowledge of how many other players were at the table, what your cards were, what cards had been revealed in the, the community cards and so forth. And uh, a lot of my friends started asking me for it and I gave it away to some of them and then I eventually put up a website where uh, I was selling it for 30 bucks a pop for mm. a download and I just so happened to be first to market in that market and what that meant was mm. I could go on Google AdWords and buy and this is also another good timing thing like Google AdWords was just getting to the point where end consumers, anybody who wanted to could sign up for an account and buy clicks. Before then, you had to be like a really big advertiser. You'd do a big ad buy. But the self-service portion had just rolled out recently then. So there wasn't a very efficient market there. 
I could buy clicks on searches like how to win at poker, poker probability, poker odds, how to win online poker for 10 cents a click and then convert people, you know, at, at a 10% rate when they landed on my website into buying a $30 product. So it was like, you know, it cost me a dollar to make 30, cost me a dollar to make 30. And over the course of my sophomore and junior year, uh, you know, I, I drastically expanded the scope of this thing and really, you know, I, a lot of my friends made money and a lot of my friends lost money playing online poker during that era. And I never really got into deeply gambling online. Mm -hmm. But what I did get into was selling like it was a picks and shovels business. You know, it's like that's really how you make money during the gold rush. And this was a thing that people used to do better at playing online poker. And, uh, you know, it was really cool in college to go to bed at night and wake up in the morning and you sold 10 more of these things and it's like, holy crap, 300 bucks. Like that's, right. that would have taken me a couple of weeks working the, the deli slicer in order to, to pull that in. And seeing that happen really taught me all I needed to see about software, the extremely high margins that are achievable when you have a product that is experiencing meaningful market pool uh, and just how fun and exciting it is to, to do entrepreneurship and really mm -hmm. see something come to life. So uh, that experience more than any other I think was the one that, that pushed me down the, the road to entrepreneurship. So okay, so now let's even go a step further back. Where, were your parents uh, entrepreneurs or are you like the rogue child in, in your family? Yeah, I mean, they're, I would say my parents are entrepreneurial. Uh, my dad uh, works in the PR industry um, and has spent a lot of time in uh, educational PR. Um, and uh, while we were growing up, I would have a, a business venture on the side, um, self-publishing books uh, or otherwise doing things kind of in the publishing industry or adjacent to his area of expertise. Um, and I think that was always really fun and exciting for me to to witness, um, you know, whether it was uh, successful or not, the whole process of the creative aspects and the marketing aspects, and and you know the theoretical upside that could exist if the if the venture is successful, um, even if it was a, a small scale self publishing thing, like that was the most exciting entrepreneurial thing that I got to see, you know, in any aspect of my life in that time. So That's cool. um, I, I think that that stuff definitely stuck with me. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, my dad's in, in PR and education and my mom uh, is in, in finance. She's a, a, a bookkeeper. And I think that combination of, uh, you know, the the analytical skills and the, the writing uh, and persuasion skills were kind of the ingredients. Uh, but entrepreneurship wasn't wasn't really a big thing in uh, you know in my community growing up. Mm, okay, interesting. Do you feel as if that you're kind of born with uh, with that innate uh, that want that desire to be an entrepreneur, or do you feel as if that uh, there's always that conversation of you know you're born with it or you're or you grow into it? It sounds as if that you were kind of just born with it. Uh, I don't know. It's a really good question. Um, I'm. Uh, I don't know quite where I fall on the nature versus nurture argument right. around this. Like, I think there's definitely I, I have a proclivity toward um, uh, technology. I would say, um, and I think that I am I am extremely uh, left-brained in in some regards, but. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also think there's a certain aspect there of like right time, right place, and just you never know, you know, I, that particular moment during your formative years when you happen to see some person do something that you deem amazing and becomes an obsessive thought that's planted in your brain and right. uh, kind of grows from there. And I couldn't tell you if it's, uh, you know, something that I, I don't know that my mom tells the story of like when I was three years old, all I wanted for Christmas was a cash register. Uh, <laughs> so like nice. there's some, maybe there is some innate thing around the, uh, you know, the, the financial aspects of entrepreneurship, but right. 
I, I, I think I give more credit, honestly, to the little tiny pieces of entrepreneurship that I got to witness growing up and how they kind of caught my attention and stuck with me uh, than I give, you know, any kind of innate, uh, you know, proclivity toward it. Sure, sure. So let's, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and let's talk about RJ Metrics. Yeah. Um, you know, RJ Metrics, you said, mentioned is 85 people now. Um, now, yeah. can you just go over in the very beginning, you talked, we talked a little bit off air that, you know, although there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of success, and a lot of people writing about you now, it really took you a decent amount of time in order to get to where you are today. Can you just tell us briefly about some of the struggles early on in, in starting RJ Metrics? Yeah, uh, so Jake and I quit our jobs at Insight on a Monday in September of 2008. Nice. On Tuesday, I love those stories. Man. You know that day. Yeah. You know the weather like it was outside. Like it totally resonates with me. But go on. Yeah, I I remember that day um, less because of any significance uh, around our business and more because the next day was the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed uh, and that basically the entire economy uh, went down the tubes for what would be a, a relatively you know, sustained period of, of several years in which the venture capital markets dried up a good amount and um, the amount of spending that was happening just in the business world um, you know, was definitely depressed. So uh, starting a business in that environment, uh, there's kind of some good and some bad. Um, the the bad is obviously that there just aren't as, as many dollars floating around out there. If you need to finance your company, if you need to find customers that are that have disposable budgets that might be willing to take a chance on a new product or tool, like all of that is going to be harder. The good part is something that you can't really appreciate until you're a couple years out, um, like I am today, which is you really come up during hard times and you are forced to build a fundamentally strong business. Like you, you are basically put into a situation where the only way to survive is to generate revenue that will allow you to make further investments in the company and grow it very organically. And when you're doing that, what you're doing is you're creating uh, processes that by definition have to make strong sense on a unit economics basis. Like you just can't put a dollar out and get 80 cents back in and survive in that version of the world. So from 2008 until 2012, really the first four years of the business, it was a very, very slow grind. Uh, you know, we over that four-year period really only grew up to about a dozen employees and maybe a million bucks worth of revenue um, because each cons consecutive year, while we built on the previous year, we were learning at the speed of experience and we were growing at the pace of revenue. Uh, you know, subsidizing the growth of the business. So it took us three years or so before we even had a single sales rep uh, because we just didn't have dollars to invest in growth or invest in customer acquisition uh, because we weren't really inclined to raise a lot of capital. And frankly, even if we had wanted to, I'm not sure we could have on on any kind of decent terms or decent scale because of the state of the economy. Um, and uh, frankly, the product was always in a state where if we could put another dollar into engineering versus marketing or sales, we put it in engineering. We're a very product first company and we cared a lot about building the right product that would solve the precise problems that we saw out in the market. So we made big investments in those early years and you know, Jake and I worked for several of those years without paying ourselves any salary. And then uh, you know, we eventually were able to turn on some payroll for us and it translated into you know, a quarter of what we were making before we had quit our jobs. Uh, 
And only over the course of the several years that followed were we able to kind of ramp that up to like a decent standard of living uh, relative to, to what we had left in order to go and pursue this. So uh, whatever. I mean, looking at it from the perspective of today, it's it's a it's a ridiculous thing to complain about or look back on like that was a struggle. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, we had really uh, we had each other to work with and I think we ended up in an environment where we, you know, had strong networks and frankly both had a lot of privilege growing up and access to, you know, we both went to great schools and, and had good networks and I think that gives us a little bit of a head start regardless of the economic time when, when we got started. So I, uh, while in the moment at any given time, you know, uh, we're not able to sleep or we're getting sick all the time because you never know if the business is ever going to become anything in those moments. I think looking back on it, it was a really important formative time and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, that's good to hear. But if you could just, uh, like what was in your, going through your mind when, you know, those early, those earlier days of struggle, um, you know, have you ever had doubt of just ending this thing? Uh, yeah, I think uh, precisely what was going through my mind was, ah! <laughs> like at any given time, uh, I was basically convinced that I was wasting my life and that uh, everything was going to go down the toilet and I'd have nothing to show for it and I'd have given up this uh, potentially lucrative career in finance in order to go pursue some pipe dream. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it feels like and in reality, it's it's true that the stakes are quite high when you're in a situation like that one. Um, but the the good news is there's there's an escape hatch, uh, which is if the company fails, you know, as long as you haven't been doing it for for ten years, it's very easy to have that entrepreneurship as a as a story, uh, as a part of your formative experience in becoming a business person, and actually use that as a positive when you know mm -hmm. finding a career at another company or, or something like that. And we've hired a ton of people that have been at businesses that haven't made it or that made it to a certain point and people decided that they wanted to kind of, uh, you know, pull the release cord. Um, so, um, I think there, there was enough anxiety to like literally give me medical problems in the early years. Um, my co-founder Jake, uh, is very open about his, uh, sleep, uh, issues. Um, and he has, he picked up during that time, uh, a, the, the habit of uh, very frequent meditation, uh, which I think has been extremely beneficial uh, for him, and I think I've, I've been inspired quite a bit by the stuff he he's done to you know keep himself in a very zen state amongst the the chaos of building a business. But uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's freaking terrifying, man. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, totally, totally can relate yeah. to that. Um, but what were some of the things that you did back then to kind of put your mind at ease? And then second question is, what do you do now to kind of put your mind at ease? Is it different? Is it, is it, uh, is it similar? Yeah, I've always been really big on hobbies and having a, uh, whether you want to call it work-life balance or whether you just want to call it being able to scratch, you know, itches in different parts of your brain that don't necessarily get scratched on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, one of the things that always kept me really level-headed in the early days was I'm, I am a, uh, I'm a programmer. Like I love writing code. And in addition to being CEO of the company, I was the technical co-founder. So I wrote the original version of RJ metrics in my attic. And eventually we hired enough engineers that were substantially better than me that they, you know, uh, ripped out my GitHub credentials and, and told me to like, go, go find something better to do. Um, <laughs> because they, they could take it from here. But in those early days, I actually found a lot of peace and a lot of uh, kind of opportunity to put my mind at ease in coding. 
so when the stresses of the business or the economic realities of the company were were really big or you know we lost a big client or we didn't close a sales deal I would actually pour myself back into the code and back into making the product better or building something that I knew would create a lot of value and the nice thing about coding is that Unlike in business where the feedback cycles can be extremely long, like you know, I'm in I'm in the seventh year of running this company, I feel like I'm in I'm in one big feedback cycle. Like the the answer at the end as to how good a job we did is is still something that's out there in the abyss somewhere. Uh, but in in coding, like you can write something and publish it and deploy it, particularly with a SaaS tool where you can do continuous deployment, and it works and it's impacting customers immediately. Uh, so you can have these feedback cycles that are an hour long, that are two hours long if you're kind of doing quick fixes, low-hanging fruit stuff. And I always got so much joy out of that that no matter what was going wrong with the business, if I spent a few hours writing code and I built something and it worked and people were going to use it and it was going to make their experience better, I just felt like all was right with the world. Um, and in the time since I have stopped coding, I've actively sought out things in my life outside of RJ Metrics to make sure that I am able to kind of keep my brain exercised in various ways. And my uh, probably my biggest outside of work hobby right now, I'm a big comedy fan. And uh, for the last three years, I've been on a house team at uh, Philly Improv Theater, um, which is a uh, improv uh, theater that operates out of the Adrian Theater at 21st and Sansom. Um, you should definitely come check out uh, House Team Big Baby on any given Saturday night. Um, <laughs> we are a long-form improv team that uh, uh, basically we practice once a week and do a show once a week. And being engaged in that community and getting the opportunity to laugh really hard with a group of people that are significantly funnier than me uh, on any given weekend is, or on any given Tuesday night when we do our rehearsals, it is, it puts my brain in that same short feedback loop place that programming did in a lot of ways, because Mm -hmm. you have an objective. If we do a show, it's a 20 minute show. We know uh, by the audience laughing or not laughing, whether or not we did a good job. We know in rehearsal, just in our heart of hearts based on you know, how good the set was that uh, we came up with during, uh, during that practice, whether or not we did a good job. And, and it releases a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of endorphins in the process just by being happy and smiling and laughing about the most trivial, literally made up stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, that, that's my version of meditation, I think, uh, is, is doing that. Sometimes that's all it takes is just a little bit of laughter just to put your mind at ease. Now, yep, in, that's the truth. In terms of uh, one of the reasons why I actually reached out to you in order to be a part of the Blind Entrepreneur is this article that you that you wrote. Um, it was featured, I believe, in Philly Mag and also technically Philly, and it talked a little bit about some of the uh, the, the struggles that you had in expanding so rapidly and how you, uh, you know, some of the things that you had to overcome in order to make things right within your organization. Um, to those yeah. of those people who who never read the article. Uh, and if it's okay with you, of course, could you just briefly hint at what that article was about and you know a brief story of uh, how you overcame those obstacles? Sure. Um, so when a company grows, everything breaks. Everything. Uh, literally computers break. Your network breaks. Uh, you know, more uh, metaphysically, the, the culture of the company and the individual uh, motivations that might drive your individual team members, they break. The framing in which you talk about the future of the business uh, needs to be continuously updated or else it will break and that will have a ripple effect on your ability to continue to scale. Your sales uh, funnels break. Uh, It is just a consistent uh, experience of 
when you're in this situation, which is, is one that uh, if you get to be in, you're very fortunate to be in, you constantly feel like you're screwing everything up because everything's, everything seems to be going terribly. Um, and in various moments, it, it's kind of like in the early days of a startup, whether or not it was a good day was dictated by one thing. It's like, we got a new customer today. Yes, today was a good day. Oh, we lost a customer today. Damn, today was a bad day. Or a new person got hired and they're excited to be here. Or somebody quit. One of those events would be like a defining moment. You get to a point where your company is, you know, uh, coming up on, on 100 people or so. And in any given day, you know, we add five customers, we lose two, uh, you know, somebody, uh, eight new people apply for jobs, but you have check-ins with two people where they have doubts about the, you know, uh, strategy of the business and whether, you know, they're going to be here for a long time. Uh, and being able to manage all of that at once and sort through the utility function in your own brain and determine whether or not things are actually going well or not uh, is actually a very, very willpower depleting kind of calculus uh, to have to worry about on a regular basis. And I think um, a lot of the challenges that we've gone through over the years uh, relate to making sure that when things break, we strike a really good balance of keeping the team motivated and inspired, but also being transparent and honest with them uh, about the state of the universe and our plans long-term for the business. Uh, and that, in a lot of cases, includes the fact that we don't always know. Um, and when you have a company that is 15 people, usually uh, those 15 people tend to be very entrepreneurially inclined. And they're okay with uh, there not being an answer or there not being total clarity on something. But you know, your 50th uh, team member is probably very different in profile than your fifth in terms of their own personal risk profile and the things that will potentially keep them motivated. And when you need to hire 20 people in a quarter instead of two people in a quarter, sometimes you need to go to a, a broader population pool and you can't find 20 entrepreneurs to come work at an 80 person company. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've got to go to people that have uh, kind of a more uh, traditional desire for stable work and want to be at an exciting company, but also want to have that balance. And for us, uh, you know, we've had challenges along the way for sure where, you know, everything from hiring senior management and having people bring in aspects of culture that are embedded in them that are kind of different from the DNA of myself and Jake. Uh, you know, we've had a few experiences like that, that, that haven't worked out too great. Um, and, to keeping the team motivated and making sure that that core entrepreneurial team that got us so far in those early years, figuring out are they the same team that is going to take us to that next stage? And if they are, how do we make sure that we keep them motivated and keep ourselves honest about how we motivate them without creating a situation that's terrifying for the other people that are, that are around? Um, and in a lot of cases, you get worried that you're just overthinking it, uh, and maybe the the right thing to do is just tell everybody everything, or tell people to mind their own business and you know go and and do their jobs. And I think that there's that sounds like one of those solutions is better than some gray area in the middle, but there ends up being a, a huge amount of nuance, especially when you've never done this before. Mm. Um, and I think the the solution for us around how to do these things well, or at least get better at them, is. In those early days, we had to learn at the speed of experience because we had no other choice. Today, we do have a choice, which mm -hmm. is we have resources available at our disposal where uh, we have we have established these networks through our investors where we can have great mentors. We can really interact with people that have been precisely in these situations before, and we can learn about you know when we're in a tough spot. Um, you know, earlier this year, we had to cut a pretty meaningful portion of our sales team. There was a particular go-to-market strategy that just wasn't panning out, and being in a situation where you need to uh, uh, you know, let go of, of 20 some odd people is very, very challenging. Uh, it's, you know, 
obviously more challenging for those people who are affected than it is for anybody else that is involved in it or left at the company and making sure that you do the right combination of doing right by them without putting the business in a place where it's not able to to function um, it's a really freaking hard thing and uh, we would have never gotten through that if not for the uh, consulting and help of, of our own mentors and being able to talk to people who had been through that kind of thing before which by the way is basically anyone who has ever run a company that has gotten to any kind of scale um, and these are the kind of things that people don't go and openly talk about like entrepreneurship is so embedded with uh, you know people that love to say everything's going great uh, and talk about all the great things going on at their company and I'm totally one of those people too I'll, I'll admit it but uh, it was so heartening going through that experience and meeting so many people that were willing to be so open about a hard time that they had in, in building their business. And uh, to me, I think that speaks to the strength of the entrepreneurship community here in Philly because a lot of those people were based here. And uh, really the importance of as a founder being able to admit that you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of times you don't even know what you do know. Mm -hmm. uh, and being able to go and ask other people for help is, is so extremely important. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, you know, and thank you for the transparency and obviously honesty in, in that answer as well. Um, very deeply appreciated. So thank you for that. Um, but I think it's no, a good, you. I think it's a good segue actually to kind of tell us a little bit more of like three, three pieces of advice that you'd give to an entrepreneur. So the reason why the blind entrepreneur exists is because there are tons of, um, people out there that basically say that millennials are, uh, are no good. You know, we're, we're people with our heads down, uh, we're on our phones constantly, we can't really do too much because we're attached to our, our phones. So you know, what, are, what are three pieces of advice that you give to another millennial or, or just somebody who, who's on the cusp of becoming an entrepreneur and just hasn't taken that leap of faith yet? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you're on the cusp of becoming an entrepreneur, I the the conventional wisdom advice that most entrepreneurs will say is uh, just just do it, just jump in. Um, and I'm I'm a little more in the the pragmatic camp, which is to say that entrepreneurship isn't really for everybody. Um, and I think the thing that led me to jump in was two separate factors that I needed I needed both of these boxes checked before I would go and do it. And number one was. Uh, did I feel like if I didn't do this, I would be wondering for the rest of my life what it would be like? Now, a lot of people have that. A lot of people who are kind of like, uh, they want to be an entrepreneur, they have maybe some kind of idea, um, they, they get that stuck in their head and they say, okay, because of this, I need to go and pursue this idea. But there is, there is a second item that I think you need just as powerfully, uh, which is, do I have an idea that I have legitimately validated and that I have been able to get other people excited enough about that they're talking about maybe joining me in doing this or investing real dollars in me or actually paying to buy my product. And there's so much work that you can do to validate those things before you take the plunge, before you quit your job, before you make any of these big drastic moves, uh, just to prove out that the thing that you're about to pursue has enough legs to get you from nothing to something, to at least having some runway or having some customers or having the ability to get feedback. Because I think a lot of people who go after entrepreneurial ideas, you know, they'll, they'll build out a presentation deck or an elevator pitch and, you know, they'll tell maybe their, their, uh, their best friend or they'll mm -hmm. tell a college professor and the universe of people that like to be polite and don't like, uh, confrontations will say, Oh yeah, that sounds like a pretty interesting idea, man. Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, and that's a, that is very, very dangerous feedback. That Absolutely. The, the good luck with that. See you later. Yeah. Uh, is, 
at the is the backbone of so many failed businesses. And what you really want to do in those situations is force those awkward conversations. Uh, and maybe that's maybe that's my piece of advice number one is just like get those awkward conversations up front and center and out of the way in the early days before you do anything too drastic because so many companies get started because uh, no one was willing to ask really hard questions and they got the, okay, uh, I like the idea, good luck, and didn't force the, okay, would you be willing to invest? Uh, what would it take for you to put $10,000 into this idea? Or what would it take for you to quit your job and join me in doing this? Because putting someone else in the awkward situation of needing to explain away a no uh, feels more painful than the upside of getting them to getting the feedback on what's missing from the story uh, there. So I, that stuff is so important in the early days. Um, and and I, I would just put all that under the category of intellectual honesty, really. It's one of our core values at RJ Metrics. It's just like be uh, when it comes to a really hard decision, just make sure that you're being really honest with yourself. Um, I, another piece of advice and also another core value we have here at RJ Metrics is, is this idea of DTRT or do the right thing. Um, it is sometimes really hard in business to uh, make decisions about uh, how to deal with a customer or how to grapple with a dollar of revenue versus uh, you know potentially having the ideal profile of kind of value to people. And when you have this core value of do the right thing, uh, for us, that is always a argument ender in a situation where you're choosing between something that is potentially a little morally gray, but in the better interest of the immediate term finances of the business uh, versus not doing that thing. Uh, and it's kind of like, you know, Google has the don't be evil slogan. I think there's a little bit of that uh, in the in the DTRT universe. But for us, it's just uh, no matter how big or small a company is or how much of a it really means a lot to be able to go home and sleep at night uh, and feel good about the fact that you genuinely care about doing right by your customers. And um, as a business gets bigger, a lot of that gets really complicated and there's a lot of nuance and gray areas between like what does it actually mean to do the right thing for a customer uh, if doing the wrong thing for one customer might bring in enough money that you can do the right thing for 100 other customers. Is it, uh, you know, is it a, better, a better or worse thing to do? Um, and I think it's important to think really hard morally about where your own personal values stand in areas like that and by and large when you apply DTRT to hard decisions, there's usually a pretty right answer and a pretty obvious one. And I think I have never regretted, no matter how much revenue we've missed out on or how many potential hires we've ended up saying, uh, you know, this isn't a fit to that would have added short-term value but compromised culture, like DTRT just wins. And I, I never have regretted a decision in the interest of, of DTRT. Um, uh, and I guess the third thing would just basically be to have fun. Uh, it's uh, a little cliched, but there's it's really hard to live in the moment sometimes when you are doing the entrepreneurship thing. There's usually when there are 20 things going on, there's one that's weighing down on your mind. And I've I've tried to work really hard to not be the kind of person who always sees the most negative possible thing and makes that the most important thing. Uh, you know, if you get if I give a talk and there are 50 tweets after saying it was a great job and then one tweet saying, hey, that sucked, hashtag fail, like, I will be super bummed out and assume that it was the worst talk that I ever gave in my life. And that's just like a part of my personality I've been trying to kick. Uh, but having that and applying it more broadly in a business sense, it's just you get to choose whether 
your perspective on the world is one of, of optimism and anything being possible or your perspective on the world is one of uh, you know, the glass being half empty and forcing you toward more conservatism. And I think in entrepreneurship, particularly early stage entrepreneurship, because of the extreme amount of volatility in your day to day, if you can't keep a balanced perspective on the highs and the lows, then you can get yourself in territory where you're just you're going to burn yourself out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think trying to make sure that you're not lying to your yourself through intellectual honesty, you're not doing crappy things through DTRT, and you're not getting stuck in a universe where you're bouncing up and down all the time through just keeping a really balanced perspective. If you can do all three of those things, I think at least you're not going to go nuts in building a company. Um, you're going to have a, a balanced experience. You're going to learn a lot. And uh, if, if you're kind of good and kind of lucky, maybe you'll, you'll see some upside uh, from the outcome too. Well, thank you so much uh, for all this information. Incredible resource. Um, but I do have one final question, and it's my personal favorite. Yeah. Imagine you just had the worst day of your life. You're down in the dumps. Yeah, right. your, your head is down, and but you still you know that you still have to end the day strong. So, what is that mm-hmm. one piece of food that will not only make your day better but put <laughs> you in higher spirits? Oh wow! Uh, I so. Given that I'm a Philly guy, uh, I actually have a legit answer here, which right. is I wanted it like uh, I'm going to go with pork tacos, Korean tacos from Giwa on Sansom Street. Right. Um, they nice. are as tempting as it might be to eat like a bunch of Reese's peanut butter cups. That's uh, going to give you short term uh, joy, but long term displeasure. I don't want to go like eat a salad or something. I'm going to be miserable eating it, right. even though I might feel good later. Those Giwa tacos. They taste amazing in the moment. They are super hot and spicy and just like flush your sinuses out immediately. Uh, and it's a really good mixture of, you know, there's some vegetables in there. You got some yeah. good protein in there, uh, some complex carbs, uh, all the things that you need to uh, feel good now and feel good later. Um, it's a nice kind of treat yourself uh, experience and it'll, it's, it's a total reset button on any day. Awesome. Great answer. Thank you so much again, Bob. If, if uh, you could that. just uh, tell everybody where people can find you where people can learn more about your story and follow RJ Metrics. Sure. Uh, best thing to do, uh, first of all, go check out rjmetrics.com and, and kick the tires on, on the product. Uh, if you are anybody who is operating a business that has some data that may or may not flow through the internet, we've probably got some things that could allow you to uh, really make smarter decisions and see some major ROI right away. And we've got free trials on everything, so it's free to kick the tires. Um, I am on Twitter at Robert J. Moore. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Robert Moore, CEO of RJ Metrics, um, and you can also keep track of RJ Metrics news and blog posts and things at robertjmore.com. Awesome. Thanks again so much, Bob. Enjoy the rest of your day. Congratulations on all your success. Cool. Thank you so much for the time.